Well, that day was pretty awful for me. It was freezing cold and pouring rain, and it wasn't until I got into it that I realized I didn't know what I was doing. I remember getting to the starting line, and I remember them sending us off, and I watched the women in front of me go, but I felt like I was barely moving, and I think I was, like, petrified. I left that race in tears. I'm not easily defeated, so instead of cowering and quitting, I decided I was going to become a better bike racer. Welcome to Athletes Unfiltered, inspiring stories from the Strava community told by the runners and cyclists who live them. I'm your host, Hillary Allen, and that was Aisha McGowan, a cyclist in Brooklyn, New York. On today's episode, we're talking about journeys, about how we get from A to B, literally and metaphorically, and all the ways that cycling and running take us to communities, places, and realizations we never could have expected. Because when it comes down to it, the person we were when we first snapped on our helmet or planted our feet at the starting line is not the person we are now. So on today's show, we're asking, how did I get here? This is a question Aisha McGowan is familiar with. She's currently on a mission to become the first female African-American pro road racer and to create better representation for women of color in the cycling community. But today, she's in a very different place from where she began. Aisha's journey begins in Piscataway, New Jersey, a medium-sized town just outside New York City. I actually really enjoyed growing up there, which is hilarious because I would never want to live there as an adult. (laughs) Um, But I feel like I had a really cool childhood experience because my town was specifically very diverse. So I feel like I had a lot of exposure to different things and different kinds of people and lots of different activities. And I never had this notion that a lot of folks have that black people only grew up in urban settings, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the complete picture of how black Americans exist in this country. I just had this full suburban experience that doesn't necessarily get portrayed all the time. Aisha learned from a young age that her experience growing up in Piscataway wasn't the norm. I played field hockey. That was my sport. I really loved field hockey. And I noticed when we would travel to other towns to for competition, there's always the like token black girl on the team. And everyone else pretty much was white or they had one or two Asian girls on the team. But our team, our field hockey team, was not like that at all. It was super duper diverse and was really cool. Race is always something that I've paid attention to to an extent. Um, But growing up in my town, it wasn't something that I had to necessarily focus on or worry about a lot. It was more of an enriching experience than a frustrating one. But all that changed once Aisha left her hometown. After high school, she was accepted to Berklee College of Music. And when she moved to Boston, it was kind of a shock. I found myself in a space where I was still um, surrounded by people of color, but it was a different context than I was used to. Going to Boston and seeing how segregated everything was 
it was pretty jarring to see firsthand the difference of how people of color are treated or how people of color exist and how segregated a northeastern city could really be. When I got to Berkeley, I didn't have a bike and I was taking the T, which is their train system there, and it was terrible. I hated it. And my friend encouraged me to get a bike because that's what he'd done and he really he was really enjoying it. I called up my mom and I asked her if I could have her bike, which was in the basement of our house. And she wasn't using it, so she let me have it. And I took it to the shop and got it fixed up and started riding and just fell in love. <laughs> Biking opened up the city for Aisha. She cycled everywhere, getting to know the ins and outs of different neighborhoods. Not long after, she heard of a youth program called Earn a Bike that taught kids to build and repair bicycles. Aisha went to the first training session for adults and found herself learning more than just the ropes of bicycle hardware. In addition to teaching the bike mechanics, they also, we did a lot of like people training. So we, ta- we learned like how not to, to be prejudiced against any particular group. So we, d- we went over ageism and adultism and racism and all the isms because they wanted us to be very aware of how we were communicating with these kids and influencing these kids because it wasn't just about the bikes. I think I learned many lessons from that experience. I think one of them was that there are so many different kinds of people within the bike community because I'd never had access to adults and bikes at the same time. And so seeing the the different people who'd signed up for this adult instructor training, they'd come from so many different walks of life. And what people don't seem to, to understand is that a lot of youth of color, I guess is what we can call them, or urban youth or whatever, they ride bikes. But most of the time, them riding bikes is frowned upon. They're looked at as a nuisance or as a problem or as a trouble within the society that they live in. Whereas they're just having fun and being kids. And it's not anything that I didn't do as a suburban youth. The other thing that I learned was the power of of advocacy as, as a tool for social progression. At the time, the person in charge of the earn a bike program was a former earn a bike student and I thought that was really cool because he'd gone through the program and now he was running it and that kind of showed me the transformative power of this type of programming. After graduation Aisha moved to Brooklyn and she carried with her this understanding of the power of cycling to unite communities to remedy preconceived judgments and to inspire change. In New York she continued working to create representation in cycling, this time for women. It was then that Aisha stumbled into racing. The Red Hook Crit was a track, well, still is, a track bike criterium race. And this was the first year that they were allowing a dedicated women's field. And with me being super into women's empowerment, I said, this is something I can get behind. I'm going to participate in this. And so I trained all fall and all winter, or what I thought was training anyway, and in preparation for the Red Hook Crit. And that's how I got into competitive racing. As we heard earlier in the show, Aisha's first venture into racing didn't go exactly as planned. It was pouring rain. Cyclists were lapping her left and right. She was absolutely terrified and left the race in tears. But despite this disheartening first experience, 
Aisha didn't give up. I'm not easily defeated, and so I made a promise to myself that I would sign up for as many clinics and instructional things and read all the materials and just learn as much as I could. And that's exactly what I did. Aisha got better and better, quickly moving from a Category 4 road racer to a Category 3. By the spring of 2015, it struck Aisha that she could go pro. And her desire to do so wasn't just because she was good. It came about because I was looking for another woman of color who'd already done it, uh, or another black woman, African-American woman, who'd already gone pro and road, and she didn't exist, and that bothered me a lot. And I've always thought representation was super important, and this was my opportunity to create representation where there was very little. So I did. Her experience working to go pro hasn't been easy, but Aisha never expected it to be. I find myself repeating a lot of things and defending a lot of things that feel like basic humanity sometimes, um, where I have to defend my own basic humanity as a Black woman. And that's frustrating, and that's exhausting. And it's not unique to this experience, to be honest. Um, it's a part of the experience of existing as a Black woman on, in a lot of spaces, not just the cycling space. But I always remind myself that this is something that I signed up for, and so... Um, I'm okay with doing this work, even though sometimes it does get exhausting and, and, and leaving that space for resting and taking a step back sometimes to make sure that I am staying in, in sharp mental focus so I can handle it. Despite the challenges of trying to become one of the only Black women in professional cycling, Aisha has persevered. She even started a blog called A Quick Brown Fox, which she recently turned into a platform for other women of color in the cycling community to share their stories. It's been awesome. I think more exciting than having other people hear the stories is listening and watching these women tell their stories and and seeing how excited they are. It seems like it's been a very cathartic experience for everybody who's done it, where they're like, man, I didn't even realize how much excitement this gave me or how important this was to me or how transformative a particular experience was. I think They've been holding on to these phenomenal experiences and not really sharing them with anybody. And having that opportunity to do so was actually a lot of fun. Through her blog and her own cycling pursuits, Aisha hopes to continue creating representation and support for minority groups within the cycling community. Because if her journey from Piscataway to Boston to Brooklyn has taught her anything, it's the power of cycling to transcend skin color, strengthen communities, and change lives no matter where someone comes from. I think this narrative that Black people don't ride bikes is really silly. My whole thing is to create more representation because I know that there are a lot of Black folks that ride bikes. I know that there are a lot of Black kids that ride bikes and men and women, but you don't see that represented in, in cycling magazines and advertisements and even just you know television, commercials or whatever non-bike related things because people have this image of what a cyclist looks like and it's not me <laughs> usually my mere existence as a black woman in this predominantly white space felt like a form of advocacy in itself because I think bikes are amazing and transformative and at a very basic level just bring people immense amounts of joy and I want to create that representation so more people who look like me can have access to that immense amount of joy
That was Aisha McGowan, a cyclist in Brooklyn, New York. Our next story comes from Mimi Anderson, an elite long-distance endurance runner and multiple Guinness World Record holder. Mimi has run 155 miles in the Sahara, 352 miles through the Arctic, and 2,000 miles across the United States. She's sprinted through the Amazon and over the hills of Scotland. But compared to the average athlete, Mimi had a late start. Her first time running, ever, was at age 36. And while she's since become a seasoned, highly accomplished athlete, the Mimi of two decades ago was vastly different from the Mimi of today. Growing up, Mimi dabbled in hockey and volleyball, but just as a hobby. I was an an asthmatic, so I always had to have a stand-in, a replacement, just in case I had an asthma attack. But I was quite obstinate and was determined that I was not going to let somebody else take over the second half. So, you know, my poor replacement used to have to sit there waiting on the sidelines, desperately wanting to have a go. But no, I never thought of myself as a particularly athletic, um, because when I left school, I didn't do any sport at all. it, It just all came to a grinding halt. When Mimi finished school, she quickly got married and became a mother. But it wasn't easy. I was married at 22 and I, you know, had my first child at at 23. So I was quite young and I was a stay-at-home mum. So, you know, somewhere along that time, although I loved, you know, I loved being a mum and I loved being a wife, you sort of lose your identity a little bit. I had an eating disorder as well, which I'd had since I was about 14. So trying to cope with that and have children and sort of, you know, appear to be normal was, you know, actually taking quite a lot of energy up. Mimi became dangerously thin and dangerously ill. She finally got help and slowly, with the support of her family and her doctors, she got better. It was only then... Once she'd begun to regain control of her body, that Mimi took a stab at running for the first time ever. I hated it. (laughs) I got on the treadmill and I thought, okay, well, just I'll I'll run for a mile. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set myself a goal of running for a mile, which, you know, sounds really easy. But actually, at the time, I could barely run for 30 seconds without being really quite breathless. So I did a sort of a run walk training program and over the next few weeks until eventually I did my my mile and then I thought okay I can do a mile now now I'm going to do three miles and once I'd actually done my three miles I thought well now I can consider myself to be you know a runner. Around this time a friend invited Mimi on a 10 mile run not on a treadmill but outdoors. I thought oh my goodness that's you know that's seven miles further than I've done before and, uh, and I thought, outside, I mean, that's going to be really difficult. Anyway, I, I went with them and I just loved it. It was fantastic. And I just, you know, I literally felt as if I'd been given a pair of wings. Running not only brought Mimi this sense of euphoria, but it also gave her power to reclaim her sense of self. Running allowed her an identity, separate from her kids, separate from her husband. Running was all hers, and it gave her purpose. Mimi went from 10 miles to a half marathon. She started seeking out challenges to run further and faster. It was then that her friend showed her an article about the Marathon de Saab. Pegged as the toughest race on earth, the Marathon de Saab is a 250-kilometer trail through one of the most unforgiving climates in the world, the Sahara Desert. 
I remember looking at this article and seeing pictures of blistered feet and people running in the desert. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that just looks so fantastic. You know, it was, it was such an adventure, you know, way, way outside the life that I sort of led. And so I just thought, do you know, why can't we do that? I don't think I thought about the distance. I just knew that I had to do it because it looked such an adventure. Finally, after a year of training, the race arrived and the former stay-at-home mom boarded a plane to Morocco. You know, I'd never traveled on my own before. You know, I'd always traveled with my husband. So the whole experience was, you know, a complete eye-opener. And I remember climbing up these amazing, beautiful sand dunes. And you saw all these people sort of going off into the distance and they just looked like ants amongst this, these beautiful dunes. It was just stunning, absolutely stunning. You know, so many people thought that I wouldn't finish this race. You know, it was billed as the toughest foot race on earth. And there were lots of people at home thinking, oh, Mimi won't do that. You know, she likes her, her high heels and her makeup and, you know, her comfy bed and, you know, all of this. There's no way she's going to make that. And, you know, so that sense of achievement when I crossed that line to think, actually, do you know, I have done it. I was very proud of myself. After running in the Sahara, Mimi became unstoppable. The world was suddenly without boundaries, without limits, and she wanted to see it all. She ran and won a 352-mile race in the Arctic and set a record for her time. The next year, she became the fastest woman to run the length of Great Britain. In 2011, she won and set another record in the Badwater in the United States. Mimi ran the length of South Africa, the Cyprus Ultramarathon, the Spartathlon in Greece, the length of Ireland, setting world records time and again in some of the toughest courses in the world. And then, in 2017, Mimi decided to take on her biggest challenge yet. I thought, ooh, you know, could I ever run across America? Mimi was 45 when she set out to break the record for the fastest time across the United States. At 3,000 miles, it was by far the longest course she'd ever attempted. I started at, at the City Hall in, in, in L.A., and I went through 12 states. So we went through Arizona, Colorado, Kansas, very windy in Kansas, Missouri, um, Ohio, I think. I mean, I couldn't believe how different all the states are. And, you know, everybody was just fantastic. But about two-thirds of the way across the country, as she was crossing through Indiana, something went wrong. It sort of started coming to a head, really, about five weeks in. So at that stage, I'd done sort of just over 2,000 miles. And my right leg was causing me quite a lot of pain at that stage. So, so much so that, you know, I just remember thinking, how the dickens am I going to get up tomorrow morning at five o'clock and run 57 miles? But somehow I did. And I carried on going and the leg, you know, got more and more sort of bent in and more and more painful. And eventually on the 40th day of the run, I did 16 very painful, very slow miles. And my crew said, right, Mimi, we're going to take you into the hospital and have an MRI scan. So as we sort of waited for the results of that MRI scan, I, I wasn't giving up at that stage. I still had my running kit on. 
And, you know, I was, I was thinking, well, a miracle cure now. You know, they can give me an injection or they can put a bandage on it or they can do something and then I'll just continue on my way. But unfortunately, no, my knee was, um, the pain was actually because I had bone on bone. So I was rubbing my bones together on my knee because I had no cartilage and my bones were actually had got bone edema. So they were very badly swollen. And the doctor basically said, look, Mimi, we can give you an injection. I thought, yes, hallelujah. Um, but he said, you know, that might only last another 100 miles. And he said, I can't guarantee that the injection is going to work. But he said, if you continue, you could cause multiple stress fractures to your legs. And, you know, he then actually told my husband, I didn't hear this bit, that, you know, I could end up coming home in a wheelchair and have to have a full knee replacement. So my husband came into the room. I was left by myself, actually. And... Tim came into the room and he said, well, I'm glad you've made the, the, you know, the right decision. I said, I haven't made the decision yet. And he just looked at me and he didn't say anything because ultimately I was the only one that could make that decision as to whether I was going to stop. And it took me over an hour to do it. And yeah, it was the most devastating. I felt totally ashamed of myself, actually. I thought, what a complete and utter failure because I hadn't, I hadn't reached... Uh, New York and I only had under 700 miles to go and my body just couldn't do it mentally I could but physically I just wasn't in the right place so I had to call it a day and it was very sad. Mimi knew she would never be able to attempt the feat again it just wasn't physically possible and even worse she would have to put long distance running on the back burner this realization was devastating Long-distance running had transformed her life. It had taken her from the confines of a household to the limitless possibilities of an entire world. And now, it was over. I did go into this big, big black hole, and I found it quite difficult to get out of that big black hole, actually. But with the help of loved ones and fans who'd seen Mimi run thousands and thousands of miles all over the world... Mimi began to see how much she'd accomplished. And I thought, you know, Mimi, you actually weren't a failure. Yeah, yes, you didn't achieve your goal, but I wasn't a failure. You know, I had run 2,217 miles. I'd done it in 40 days. I've done something that very few people will ever do. And I was on track to break the record. So, and I never gave up. I mean, I never once gave up. You know, my, my body gave up on me. I had a long chat with a friend of mine who'd had knee issues and things, and he said, you know, Mimi, actually, the sooner you get your head around the fact that you can't run the really long distances before again, um, you know, actually, the better you'll feel. So I thought, OK, what else can I do? I'm going to get on a bike and find another challenge. In 2018, Mimi biked the length of Great Britain, the route she'd accomplished on foot 10 years earlier. Mimi calls herself a bikelist, not quite a serious cyclist, but not a leisure rider either. And although she's in a better place now, it's not without bittersweet moments. And I do miss my running. One bit of me is very sad, but the other bit, having done my bike ride, actually, I can still go and do other things. So, you know, many people can't even do that. You've got to turn a negative into a positive and look on the positive side and, and not feel sorry for myself. So I don't, I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm just on another journey now. That was Mimi Anderson. Our final story comes from Greg Irwin. 
Greg is an accomplished cyclist. He's biked hundreds of routes throughout the U.S., across big cities, into tiny towns, and through the nation's most obscure pockets. But biking isn't the main reason for his travel. Greg is the drummer of the acclaimed indie rock band Saint Motel. They might seem very different, playing in a band and cycling, but both music and wheels are in his blood. My history with two-wheeled things is definitely lengthy. Uh, My parents got me a motorcycle at four, and by age five, I was racing. Growing up on the back of my dad's motorcycle and just always being around it, you know, just anything with wheels, I was like super, super into, and I just like couldn't get enough. Music for me was also fairly early. Uh, My dad's father, my grandfather was a a bagpipe and drum major and in Ireland. And then I would always go to competitions with him and whether he was competing or not, you know, we just always watching always. And I was always drawn to the drum sections of all these pipe bands. And I, I was just super into it. As a child and teenager, Greg rode competitively and obsessively studied drumming. But as he got older, Greg felt more and more pulled toward music than motorcycles. He decided to quit riding and moved to L.A. to find a band he could play with. I certainly had doubts after I moved to Southern California, like, man, what have I done? This place is terrible. These, all these bands are terrible. But within a couple months, I met the, the band that I'm still with, you know, I'm in St. Motel, like, for 13 years now. But the early days of St. Motel were tough. The band struggled to hold down jobs and toured whenever they could. We used to just tour in a van, the four of us, and you're out for a month and like you haven't worked out in a month and you just start feeling like shit and you're drinking every night and you're just, your diet sucks and like um, that early version of touring, it's hard. Like, and then you start breaking down mentally because you're like physically feel like shit. Whether you have help with driving or it's just the band driving themselves like we were, it's like, there's just there's literally no time to to eat right there's no time to get out and like take a jog or just you know like there's no time for you basically and like that's it's it's really hard to maintain and it's i think why a lot of people don't make it through that phase greg would return from each tour physically and mentally exhausted he and his bandmates would work day and night to support themselves and the band It was during this trying period that Greg discovered a different kind of riding. On a whim, he bought an old road bike from a pawn shop. I'd never had a road bike up to that point. I'd always been off-road and uh, I was like, man, there's something to these skinny tires. You can go really fast and just kept riding that, kept riding that. You know, eventually it just became full-blown, like just got obsessed with it and got a better bike. And, you know, it was like that was the kind of integration into like full-blown cycling fanatic. Greg had caught the racing bug, and shelving his bike each time he went on tour wasn't easy. He dreamed of the day when he could finally bring his bike on tour. I would come home and I'd ride as much as possible, as much as possible, like, until I left again, and then, you know, come home and hope that you had some fitness left. But I was always scheming, like, man, I know when I get a, if we get a chance to get a bus, like, that's the day, like, I knew I, I just, it had to happen. And when literally like the, the day we got a, a, a tour bus, it was just like a short two week run in the Midwest. And I flew out with my bike and it was like everything I wanted it to be and more. I couldn't, I well, could not believe I had a bike on tour and it was like, just opened the world up. 
now that I am able to like quite literally every day on tour, ride my bike and do that whole adventure side of my life and see new things and see new roads and physically and mentally like get this escape from the tour. It's maybe switches off your tour brain for a little bit and you get to like have this other totally different experience from what your grind is. I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from being able to ride my bike while on tour has been like, I spent so many years just driving through these places or overnighting in these places and just like, you know, okay, this is some shithole town that I don't, you know, there's nothing here, this place sucks. Gaining this like new appreciation for all these different places, having a bike, it's been pretty wild. Like, I mean, some of my favorite, favorite rides in the past few years on tour have been days off in some nowhere side of the freeway town. Greg started bringing a camera on tour, taking pictures of the routes he cycled, the places large and small that he explored along the way to each venue. Word of Greg's posts caught wind in the cycling world, and more and more people began following his adventures. And his hobby inspired others to start biking as well. And my whole goal with all of this is really, to, you know, right now is to create a ride community on the road. And, you know, if, if people want to come out and ride with me from the tour bus and go for a ride in the morning and they come to the show in the evening, like that's kind of cool full circle for them and for me. You know, it's nice to connect with people that have similar interests. And, you know, I'm, I find a lot of people that I meet on the road, maybe somebody introduced them through a mutual friend or they saw what I was doing on you know, some social media channel or whatever. And they don't, they might not even know the band. They might not know. They just say, Oh, this is interesting. Like I've got my Wednesday morning free. I'll go meet up and, you know, and through Strava I was putting out, uh, rides and putting together routes and creating meetups. The joke is always, you know, the hashtag is St. Motel cycling team and it's just me. So, <laughs> but you know, now there's like this little, tiny community of some younger fans that have basically like what I've seen is like they're dusting off their old, like crappy road bike or mountain bike out of the garage and like going out for rides and they're like tagging their rides and same motel cycling team, you know? And like, it's nice to connect with people that have similar interests and they don't, they might not even know the band. They might not know. They just say, Oh, this is interesting. Like my ultimate goal is to just create ride community around what I'm doing. St. Motel continues to be successful. The bands played at Madison Square Garden and Coachella. They've toured across Europe and the U.S. with bands like Weezer and Arctic Monkeys. From time to time, Greg reflects on what life would have been like without his bicycle by his side, and whether he would have been able to achieve the professional success and personal sense of well-being he has today. I feel like I know the value that having this bike having the, that be a part of the music experience has added an immeasurable amount of value to like what I've been able to do. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine not having it, but you know, I, I certainly am aware of what it's worth to me. That was Greg Irwin, a cyclist from Los Angeles, who also happens to be the drummer for the band Saint Motel. I'm Hillary Allen, and this has been Athletes Unfiltered, a podcast by Strava. Thanks so much to our guests this week, Aisha McGowan, Mimi Anderson, and Greg Irwin. 
for reminding us that biking and running can take us to places we never could have imagined. And that new accomplishments, new perspectives, new journeys are always on the horizon. Just a ride or run away. If you have a goal, something you're striving toward, you should give Summit a try. Summit is Strava's membership program designed to help you achieve. It's our best features, made by athletes like you for athletes like you, starting at prices lower than the average energy bar. Whatever your goal, Summit can help you get it. Learn more at strava.com summit and use the code podcast at checkout to get your first month for free. As always, we want to hear your unfiltered stories. You can email them to us at podcast at strava.com. You can subscribe to Athletes Unfiltered in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with more inspiring stories told by the runners and cyclists who live them.